I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? This week, climate change as inspiration. Think of musicians like Neil Young, Robbie Robertson, and for a younger generation, Billie Eilish. They're among a growing number of musicians, artists, writers, photographers, and filmmakers using climate change as a muse, though not a muse to gaze upon with love. Works of art, literature, music, paintings, and film have the power to move us in profound ways, move us to tears, to laughter, even to indignation. We're looking at whether art has the ability to move people to take action on climate change. Can an artist creating work focused on climate succeed where the data, the scientists, and the activists have not? We're going to begin this week with a confession, and it's not mine. Lisa Johnson joins us now. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Laura. She's a producer on the show. So tell me, what what are you here to confess to? Well, you know, when you suggested the topic for this show, because it was your pitch, um, to be honest, I didn't really get it. I thought, okay, that's going to be interesting. That's very uh, CBC radio uh, talking <laughs> about the arts. I, I was loving it. But in terms of, you know, a show that's looking at solutions and the urgency of the climate action that's needed, I wasn't seeing the connection. So luckily, one of us did. I mean, I had thought about art as having an ability to motivate people to maybe I wasn't sure, but having the potential to motivate people to sort of take on the challenge of fighting against climate change. And I thought therein laid the nub for an examination of the question. And and so I'm with you now, Laura. I really am, because one of the things we know about communicating on climate, and and there's a lot we don't know, but uh, for sure, data is not enough. You cannot just download information into people's brains and have them uh, decide they're going to do something about it. It's very clear. And so the arts, we should look at as something that could play a role in, you know, motivating people to act. And I'll be back a little bit later to talk about the science there and what art maybe can and cannot do. And in the interim, you're going to listen to the case being made for it. So, Lisa, we will talk to you in just a little bit. See you then. Modern human civilization has developed within just 10,000 years. Yet our success as a species has tipped the planet's systems outside their natural limits. We are all implicated, some far more profoundly than others. But the tenacity and ingenuity that helped us thrive can also help us to pull these systems back to a safe place for all life on Earth. That's an excerpt from the documentary Anthropocene, The Human Epoch. One of the film's makers, Jennifer Beishwal, has been directing and producing documentaries for 25 years. This most recent project vividly displays the human impact on Earth in a way the New York Times called terrifying, It was also the basis of an exhibition in Toronto. Jennifer joins me now, along with Omar Elakad. He's a former reporter with The Globe and Mail. His first novel is called American War. It's set more than 50 years in the future, where climate change has sparked a new civil war. And later in the podcast, Omar will read from his book. 
But right now, welcome to both of you. Hello. Thank you for having us. Omar, I want to start this conversation with you. What were you trying to accomplish with American War? I think I was trying to get at something related to stubbornness, um, related to this idea of this is the right way and this is the way we have to do it because this is the way we've always done it. One of the things that happened when American War came out is that this story that I had intended to be about an allegorical America ended up coming out in the first few months of the Trump administration. And so suddenly was taken as a very literal attempt at prophecy. You know, this is how a second civil war in America is going to go down, that sort of thing. Really what I was trying to do was, was, was to get at this notion of just how stubborn we are when it comes to the way we've done things having to be the way we continue to do things, even as we start to see how ruinous those things are. Whether that actually got out. Um, I don't know, but that was my intent going into it. Did you feel any sense of mission to make people care about what the world could become? That's a really interesting question because I, I as a writer, of course, I, I, you know, I, there were things that I had hoped to accomplish in terms of getting readers to think about uh, in a, you know, through a different lens, that sort of thing. But at the same time, I also don't think that fiction writers should be obligated or should be held to that standard. Um, you know, which is to say that my favorite novels don't suddenly diminish in quality if the message they are trying to get across doesn't resonate with people, if people don't listen. Um, so on one hand, yes, I wanted to get at the, the places that I was seeing destroyed. Um, you know, a lot of this book takes place in southern Louisiana. Southern Louisiana is disappearing at the rate of something like a football field of land every half hour. Um, and hardly anybody talks about it. And so I wanted to get at this idea of, of, of shaking someone and saying, look, look through these different set of eyes. Jennifer, I want to turn to you. You're in a slightly different position in, the, in that you're dealing with reality as opposed to fiction. So the same question to you. What are you trying to do with Anthropocene and your other documentaries on the environment and climate change? Well, the, you know, the, the film was inspired by the the work and research of the scientists of the Anthropocene Working Group. And they've been, I guess it's about 15 years now that they've been gathering uh, evidence of human impact on the systems of the earth. And when we first encountered them and started, you know, reading their research and, and interviewing them and talking to them, and we went to, a, Nick and I went to a couple of their um, plenary meetings, um, being Nick Duponcier, my partner in life and, and work, who we've been working together for 25 years. And, uh, and so we went and the work was absolutely fascinating, but also somewhat impenetrable uh, for ordinary people, like including us, like we, we would, you know, see all of these charts of, of um, you know, uh, impact on the sediment uh, exchange and how humans, you know, uh, how humans move more sediment than all the rivers of the earth combined in, in mining and et cetera, and these kind of stats. And we were trying to figure out a way of conveying that information um, uh, in a non-didactic way and also in a non-judgmental way, which is very much the way that the scientists work adding in Ed Bertinsky, our collaborator with whom we've worked, you know, um, for 
13 years with two other projects. Uh, and, and looking at the sort of possibility of intersections of disciplines, like the interdisciplinarity of taking science but putting it into an art context, uh, uh, an art film and then an art, there was an exhibition, a book, etc., of a, a, um, uh, an educational program, and trying to find the most salient ways of using lens-based media to communicate this message and promote experiential understanding, by which I mean a kind of recognition of the person encountering the work, of their own implication in these changes to the earth system, um, but also a, a recognition that comes simply from witnessing rather than being told, um, hit over the head, or told what to think about what they are looking at. And, and that's how the whole thing kind of um, uh, unfolded. So, I, I mean, I wonder with both of you, you, you put these works that you've created out into the world. Um, is there any way for you to measure, to know what impact it's had and, and whether it's even an impact you, you intended? Omar, let me start with you. Interesting question in the sense that I have taken these things that, that I saw and I've passed them through a sort of deliberately grotesque mirror or a deliberately grotesque lens in the hopes of sort of showing the extrapolation. I was in Southern Florida um, shortly after a hurricane had gone through and, and showed how useless the seawall they built, this little seawall actually was. And I was talking to people who were trying to come up with, with something more substantial in terms of solutions. And at the same time, there was um, a real estate guy over from Holland, I think, who was pitching blueprints for mansions that were designed to float so that if the water ever came over the, the wall, the mansions would be okay. And it was one of those times where I felt like, you know, I write fiction for a living now, and, and the purpose of fiction, I think, is to intrude on reality. And instead, I was watching reality sort of intrude on the fictional. And so it's become increasingly difficult for me to to monitor whether there's been any kind of change in my readers' minds um, because what I thought was this incredibly grotesque extrapolation doesn't feel like that much of an extrapolation anymore, which is my roundabout way of, of sort of giving you the non-answer of saying <laughs> reality is moving a little too quickly for me to figure out if my book is having an impact on, on people's minds because the world I'm describing is not as far away from the real world as it was when I started writing this book. At the same time, I think you've had some readers get in touch with you and, and tell you what impact it had on them, didn't, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, across the board. And, and one of the fascinating things is, is all the different readings of this. You know, I've had readers email me telling me that it's impacted their choice of where they want to retire. The places that they thought about going, they're now thinking about in very different, um, different terms. And that's not something that I was thinking about consciously when I was putting the book together, you know, I hope this really makes people think twice about moving to Florida. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a sort of strange reaction, but that is, to me, the most fascinating aspect of this work I do is that I genuinely have no idea the different, the, 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 just the vast 
variety of readings. I had a bookseller in Texas tell me that this book shows why a second civil war would be brutal and bloody and why we need it. And I thought, really, that's what you took from this book, that we need a second civil war. That is a fascinating reading. So yes, it, it has it has affected people, but in ways that I couldn't have possibly sort of um, imagined ahead of time. And Jennifer, what about you? Do you, do you get a sense of, of what the effect of the film films and in this film in particular have had on people? Well, I, I mean, one of the reasons that we sort of kept going with Ed was that the the manufactured landscapes and then watermark had a it did have an impact on people and and of course we get a much more um you know sometimes direct response because when you're screening with you know hundreds of people and they tell you immediately what they think about it afterwards whether they like it or not and there's something very gratifying about that instant you know reaction when you've been toiling for i mean this project was a five-year project so um, it, it, that in itself is gratifying, but it was that we often get nailed for not being, you know, uh, not being strident enough in our message. That that there's something too restrained about it, and and that's from you know all of the activist friends we have that are constantly you know working, exhorting um, uh, people to action. Uh, around these huge issues and and there is a very you know high and important place for that. What we try to do is something a little bit different in that it 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 allows you as as, as a viewer or somebody who comes to the exhibition to come to your own conclusions and I think that there's a uh, a danger there, of course, that people aren't going to take away, you know, what you want them to take away. But the point is, we didn't. What we all we want is an opening up of consciousness about the fact that you know these these places of of extraction and waste um, that exist all over the world are directly related to our everyday lives, and and we don't think about them. You know, we don't. Those of us who have the fortune to live in the global north, in in urban environments, you know, we go along with our day and we we make these forays into nature, like oh, we're going canoeing, we're going hiking, but everything we do every day is taking from a natural landscape somewhere or affecting a landscape. We just don't see these places, and you know, it, the, the, one of the scenes in the film is from Norilsk, which is in Siberia. Uh, and it's a closed city in Russia. You can't even, even Russians can't go there because it's a strategic city and it has the biggest colored metal mine in the world and the biggest source of palladium in the world. And palladium is in all of our cell phones. And it's something that I say to people at screenings, like the chances are that the cell phone that I am, you know, using and that you have in the audience has palladium in it from Norilsk, but you would never know that. And it's one of the most polluted places on earth. So it's that kind of consciousness raising that we're trying to do. And I will say that because we're, we're able to measure the metrics from the exhibition and, and the film, like the film is being shown all over the world, you know, the exhibition even in, in Ontario at the AGO and at the National Gallery had thousands and thousands and thousands of people through it and thousands of students, um, kids coming from schools. Uh, I, I hope that there was, uh, you know, a cumulative sort of 
impact from all of that. Jennifer, I, you mentioned that something I didn't say when I was introducing you, the fact that Anthropocene isn't just a film. It's also a visual exhibition with um, Edward Bertinsky's photographs as well. Um, I wonder if you can tell me the story about the button. Just so you know, the 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 we really pushed the the form. I mean, our 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 work in documentary has always been kind of trying to push formal boundaries and escaping sort of um, you know traditional text visual relationships, traditional sort of journalistic um, approaches. And, and this film was no exception, but it also had this exhibition that included not only Bertinsky's photographs, but augmented reality. Um, we did uh, 360 virtual reality for the educational program. So kids at school could put on a headset and be inside the Dandora landfill site or the quarries in Carrera, you know, an example of extraction. So we were, that's what I meant by trying to extend lens-based media as far as we could to promote experiential understanding. But anyway, at the HEO, where we had to go many times to sort of, you know, uh, give, take people through and, 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 and uh, see how the exhibition was going. Yeah, sorry, the Art Gallery of Ontario, but there's all these buttons at the end. It was a kind of station, we called it the change station, and we had links to all of the organizations that we work with, like environmental defense and eco-justice and the Stock Community Food Centre, these crucial organizations that are doing you know, social justice work and environmental justice work. And there were all these buttons that you could press of how did this exhibition make you feel sad, angry, suspicious, right? <laughs> and there were metrics of how many people had pushed the button. And of course, the motivated one, especially at the beginning, was not getting pushed a lot. Like people were more mad or sad or, or depressed. And so whenever I went in, I would hit the motivated button a number of times to skew the results so that, so that we would, I guess I shouldn't probably admit that, but I, I just, because for me, having been in all of these places, um, and, you know, going the, the enormous privilege of being able to go to all of these incredible environments that are actually very difficult environments uh, to live in. And then think about people who are dealing with these places and, and the logistics of being in these places every day. Um, that was profoundly transformative to me uh, as an individual, personally. So I feel like I kind of uh, hope that that some of that uh, it was was rubbing off on on all of the people who came to the exhibition, even if I did try to skew the results. So much for that data, Omar. I'm wondering if you wish you had a button for for, for your novel. Yes, it just says "Stone Cold Bummer." I mean, just press it repeatedly for every piece of fiction I write these days. Well, Omar, that brings me to my next question. Then is is how do you craft your work so that you don't end up turning people off or making them feel helpless? I am usually concerned with with the aftertaste of the thing, the aftertaste of the book, um, what what resonates. I this is an incredibly hypocritical thing to say given the content of American War, but I'm I'm not a fan of of overt violence in my media, um, not my books or movies. And the older I get, the more the more that's true. It depends on the obligations you have to the work going into it. You know, my obligations with American War were to describe as accurately as possible, um, in an emotional sense at the very least, 
the things that I had seen in places like Afghanistan when I went to cover the, the NATO invasion or the Guantanamo Bay detention camps or what I saw when I was in Louisiana and Florida and I saw people's land literally disappearing under their feet. And at the same time, the industries contributing to that, essentially providing them with their livelihoods. It's not that people in southern Louisiana are oblivious. They know exactly what's causing this. They know that the miles and miles of oil and gas pipelines are not incidental to what's happening. They know that these industries are not incidental. They also know that these parishes would be some of the poorest places in America if it wasn't for these industries. If you're going to describe that, you have some obligation to describe it as it is, which is a depressing space to be in. Um, and I, I, as much as I want to give a sense of hopefulness in, in my writing, I can't do it at the expense of the emotional reality of what's happening to these places. And that makes me wonder, Omar, um, your novel is more often seen or depicted by those who have reviewed it as, a, as one about the consequence of war, but it's a war born of the impact of climate change. I wonder, when you traveled in the South and did your research, what impact did seeing those effects have on you? I mean, it was a profound change of, of prism, you know, through which to see something. I was in this one of these repurposed plantations. There's, there's all, all these plantations through the South, these very pretty buildings that were built by slaves and have an incredibly ugly history at, at their roots. And these days are used as sort of tourist traps and uh, pretty places for people to get married. And, and I wanted to see one of these places up close because to me, they sort of existed in a literary sense, but I had never, I'd never been to them. And so I'm walking around and the tour guide is talking about how the rich white folks lived in the big house that was built by slaves who had to live on the outskirts of the property and lived and died on the outskirts of the property such that their groups were there. And that the Mississippi River, as it moves over the years, swallowed up those graves such that entire parcels of, of the remains of human life are have disappeared. If they've washed into the river, they are gone forever. And, and seeing this interaction between the natural world and what we've done to it and the systemic injustices that we've done to one another and the places where they intersect, I think sort of changed my view of my initial naive view of climate change as this kind of all-encompassing neutral thing that affects us all equally and we can all fight it equally and so on and so forth. And you go to these places and you see, no, that's that's not how it's going to play out. It's going to be overlaid on all our existing ways in which we hurt one another, all of our systemic injustices. And and so that that switched my perspective fundamentally from thinking of climate change as this thing we have to fight in of itself. Um, thinking about all of the different ways in which we have to change the ways we hurt one another, because this is going to be overlaid on top of them. And we can't just talk about climate change as a kind of standalone thing that is independent of racism, independent of wealth disparity, uh, independent of all of these things we've done to one another. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. 
Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Mother. Jennifer, you, you talked about your work as being transformative for you. I, I'm wondering what has stood out to you and affected you personally in, in the work that you've done. Well, I totally agree with Omar there that, that those, and it goes back to that intertwining of social and environmental justice. And if COVID has taught us anything, it is exactly that also, that the, all of these existing systemic injustices are totally exacerbated by a situation like this in a global pandemic. And we're seeing that play out um, everywhere, really. And I I think the the to me the I had a pivotal moment in China when we were filming manufactured landscapes where we were heading back into Beijing and we stopped in this suburb that was um you know construction site all of these huge buildings were going up and um we got out of the bus and I was you know I did a 360 degree turn and I there was nothing natural in the environment. There were no trees, there were no plants, there were no birds. And there was this huge kind of wasteland field with something that wasn't even dirt. It wasn't even earth. I, I, I don't know what it was that we were standing on. And this was not a place that was away from people. There were kids playing in this environment. There were people riding their bikes. There were people walking. There was coal everywhere. And I, I, I kind of thought, wow, this is this is the future. This is your dystopian, our dystopian future. Um, and, and that was sort of profoundly effective to me. Um, in, in Anthropocene, the, the, the moments that we have spent with people who are, as I said before, living in incredibly... Um, degraded and difficult circumstances, you know, in the middle of a landfill site, uh, for example, or species that are pursued um, uh, and, and, and the people who are trying to save these species in conservancies, in, uh, in Old Pajeta Conservancy in Kenya, or even in, in the Zoological Society of London, the London Zoo, where there's a woman who has been raising mountain chicken frog babies for two years to be reintroduced extremely carefully into the wild in the Caribbean where they're taken there, they come into the tents at night, they're allowed to go out in the day. Like the, the, the painstaking effort um, that goes into the, the attempted rehabilitation of these species, that just leaves me gobsmacked and, and, and kind of awestruck. And, and it goes back to that recognition of we are a species with incredible capacity. Um, uh, what, what, when, what will it take for us to turn that capacity to uh, the, the, the real issues that are bearing down on us? So the question then becomes, for both of you, do you think that what you bring to people is more powerful and has more potential to affect them than the studies or the science of this. Well, in our case, I mean, I'd love to hear what Omar has to say about from from a fiction perspective. But you know, film is a powerful medium, right? It, and it has 
um, it, it, it's a medium that, that it's time-based, it has, you know, sound and picture, and it has the capacity to move people in a number of ways simultaneously, not just intellectually, which I would say uh, could happen from science and maybe more, but certainly and it, it can move you intellectually, emotionally, viscerally, all at the same time. And I, I think that that, using that medium in, for to open up that consciousness, to move people in that way, uh, it is our goal. Uh, whether it works or not is, is, is another matter. Um, I hope it does, because uh, that, that's why we do it. Omar? The work that, that Jennifer does, is, is it's, it's difficult to sort of overstate that, overstate the, the, the impact of that witness, of bearing witness to these things, of getting to these places. You know, in terms of, of what I'm doing with fiction, I was thinking a lot about the idea of, of the world that we're in right now is, is sort of oriented along the axis of, of something like hyper-capitalism, where every societal vector is, is oriented away from the communal good and towards the individual good. And, you know, that's resulted in some of the wealthiest people who've ever lived or alive today. It's created immense amounts of wealth for certain people, immense amounts of power, success. But one of the things that this particular ordering of society has done is sort of create an, uh, an endless, all-encompassing present where the only thing that matters is sort of now, now, now. And I think whenever I go into fiction, particularly for a long-form project, particularly for a a novel, what I'm trying to do is is sort of reclaim a little room for the past and the future, for the sense that there were things that existed that are no longer with us, and things we see now that won't be around in the future, and to try and sort of expand a little bit beyond the idea of the endless now, that the most important thing is more and now. Um, that's what I'm sort of trying to do whenever I write whenever I write a story. And I think fiction is, is good for that. Um, but certainly what I'm doing doesn't compare to Jennifer going to these places and getting the, the, the reality of what is happening that makes our lives possible in the way that they are. And sort of the way that that opens up a conversation about the consequences of the ways we live our lives. Like she said, everything we do now is an interaction with nature in one way or another, including me speaking into this phone right now. To be able to document that, I think, is a very powerful thing. Well, they both are, though. Like, I, 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 I don't agree with that. I think that being completely immersed in the world, as you say, fiction and reality, this, this, which, which is... Um, how it toggles back and forth. Like in our work, we're always toggling back and forth between scale and detail uh, to create understanding um, and empathy, really. The, the ethics of our engagement is, is hugely important when we go to all of these places, which are difficult to get to. But the interior world and the exterior world that you can create um, by having control of all of that is immensely powerful, I think, and 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 is still, I mean, for me, one of the the, the ways that I am most transported uh, uh, when when I'm engaging with an art form is reading fiction. So uh, I think it, it it is incredibly powerful as well. Let me bring this back to you then, as we wrap up our discussion. 
if you do look at most of the art out there, the, the writing, the film, I think you'd probably agree with me that it doesn't pay that much heed to the consequences people are facing. And I'm wondering whether you think that's a problem and, and do all artists have a duty to speak out more? Omar? I mean, I think increasingly. So right now, my my book is often put on lists of uh, what's called cli-fi, uh, climate fiction. This is a genre that sort of popped up, or at least the terminology for it has popped up in recent years. And I get that. I get that that it's easy to sort of pick a few novels and say, oh, this fits into the genre of cli-fi. But I think overwhelmingly going forward, if you are in a creative endeavor, if you are in the business of trying to describe the messiness of human life, you are not going to be able to ignore that aspect of it. It is not something that is confined to a few people in one part of the world, and you can sort of choose to jump into that topic and jump out of it at will. This is going to impact everything, including memory. You know, the place where I grew up uh, in the Middle East, if current trends continue, is going to be uninhabitable by the end of my life. If I live an average lifespan, the place where I experienced my childhood is going to be is going to fit the technical definition of no longer being fit for um, human habitation, right? That that's not a genre issue to deal with in fiction. That relates to memory. That relates to what it means to be human. Um, so I think it's not so much that that creators have an obligation to to meet this topic in some space. I think largely you're just not going to be able to do anything else. I think it's going to impact every facet of how we think about being alive. Um, so I don't think of it in terms of obligation, rather it's just an all-encompassing thing. Jennifer? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, before I became a filmmaker, I, was, I studied philosophy and um, there was the whole idea of Immanuel Kant's the thing in itself, like the, this idea of the irreducible thing. And I, I think that art in some way has to be irreducible. If it can be paraphrased, um, it, it's not art. It's, it's propaganda, I think. And I, so it's a very fine line in terms of obligation. And I think Omar is right that it, 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 is, it is so present to us now. It is so much the reality. It is the place that we're swimming in uh, that we can't not address it. But if your goal is to uh, do something that doesn't have that dimension um, that is irreducible, I think, as, a, as in, in this work, in, in the work of art, I think it loses something. And, and so to me, it is the mystery of that power, the power of the medium, and it being the thing in itself that is irreducible, that is part of the experience of, of conveying um, uh, an idea, a mood, a feeling, a reality, um, a problem. I am so grateful for all of your time and your insights and your thoughts on this. Thank you very much, Omar and Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Jennifer Bashwal is a documentary filmmaker and Omar el is a writer and journalist. And coming up just a little later in the podcast, Omar will read a brief passage from American War.
So Lisa, we're going to bring you back in here. What did you think of what Omar and Jennifer had to say? Oh, so interesting, especially hearing um, that description of how Omar's uh, fiction is less fictional than it was when mm-hmm. he wrote it. Yeah. And so from a science communications perspective, what do you think uh, of the role that arts could play? So I've been looking into what people are saying about this, and I'll zoom in a little bit on the visual arts to cover that part of it. And You know, the big idea here is, like we discussed, engaging people's imagination and emotions because, you know, decades of data, the scientific consensus, uh, doom prognostications, it's not working, right, to get uh, societies on a path to stop warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, to stop runaway climate change, essentially. So I want to play you something that this artist, Diego Galafassi, told me. He lives in Sweden but did a residency in Montreal last year and works on art that tries to engage our imaginations in a climate future. The challenges are of such a magnitude that uh, we cannot approach them only as technical problems of something that we could just fix by changing um, some policies or, or something like that. It's very profound kinds of transformations that we have to go through in a very short amount of time. So we've heard now a few samples of what kind of art people are making that it, that is somehow linked to climate change. What other kind of climate art is out there trying to engage people? Well, in the visual arts, one thing that's interesting is how it's shifted. And I think this tells us something about how people think about climate change. So um, Diego Galafassi and his colleagues studied that and said early 2000s, it was all the melting ice, the rising seas, the polar bears. So this biophysical thing happening out there and away from us. But what's changed now is a lot of the climate art is much more humans and the environment intertwined. Like the project that I mentioned that he did in Montreal last year was an installation called Breathe. And I want to play for you a bit of a trailer from when it went to the Sundance Festival. When you breathe, you join the life of the atmosphere. With every breath, you renew your belonging to a vast living atmosphere. So this is uh, an installation that would feel a lot different in pandemic times. This was before the pandemic. People were in a room with biometric sensors, augmented reality, and these little sort of glowing dots floating around that showed you digitally air moving in and out of you and others. The idea of being connected to the atmosphere every second. Right. That that is the art side of it. Then what is the argument about how art can actually make that difference? So... Diego Calavasi and others that I talked to uh, describe art as a way of overcoming some of the barriers in how we think and talk about climate change and especially how distant it feels. Because there's a lot that we don't know about what messages will be most effective for people to take action. Uh, And it, it really probably is not one size fits all, which is part of the challenge. But one thing that's really clear, and we know again and again, but we still keep doing it, is something called the deficit model. So this is where uh, the idea that people just need information, like they have this hole in their knowledge. And if you know what I know, then you'll believe what I believe. And that so does not work. And for a lot of reasons, right? We have uh, different values, um, trust different systems of authority, um, and the threats may seem very distant and more distant to some than others. So it'll happen in the future or to someone else, but not to me. And you can even see this in Canadian opinion polling. So 
came out of the Climate Communications Group at Yale a few years ago. 83% of Canadians think the earth is getting warmer. 70% said their province has already felt effects. But when you get down to it, is it going to harm you personally? Eh, <laughs> half and half. Right. So it feels like uh, maybe someone else's problem down the road. Well, then I, I guess the question becomes, can art make the threat real to people? Well, the idea is it could engage our imagination and bring that sort of distant idea close uh, in an emotional way. I talked to an environmental psychologist at the University of Victoria named Robert Gifford, and he studies what he calls the dragons of inaction when it comes to climate change. So this isn't, you know, climate denial. This is even people who believe uh, and understand or heard the science may not feel that motivated to do anything about it, given everything else going on in their lives. And Part of that is the idea of discounting the threat as distant. And he said engaging people emotionally is important in overcoming that to a point. Uh, we learned from the anti-smoking campaigns a long time ago that you don't want to overdo the fear part because people just tune out and say, I can't handle that. But you do want to engage people's emotions because when people are emotionally engaged, uh, they tune in more. Can you even make them laugh? So when you said, like, is can art make the threat real, you want that, but maybe not totally real, not totally fear-based, then people would tune out. But add in a little hope, a little something to do about it, that can be motivating. That sounds like almost an art in itself to figure out what that balance <laughs> is. You're the one with the science background, so mm -hmm. let's talk about data. Is, is there data on whether art works to engage people on climate change? Well, from what I've been reading, there's some. There's not a ton looking at that. And of course... You know, it depends a lot on which people and which art um, and all these different messages and how they'd be received. But I want to tell you about a study published last year from work that happened on the streets of Paris. So this is when the UN climate negotiations were happening in 2015. Um, there was that happening in those buildings. And then all around the city, climate-related art was being shown. And psychology researchers went around to these galleries and measured reactions from hundreds of people to 37 different artworks. So does it make you happy or guilty or anxious? Does it give you helplessness? Are you left surprised or in awe? All that emotional connection. And how does it make you think about your role in the climate situation. I talked to the lead author on that paper, whose name is Laura Summer. And one thing that surprised her is she'd expected participatory art. So like you join in with others and paint a mural. She thought that would motivate people to like take part and take action. But it was kind of the opposite. People were feeling happy. They were feeling like they were part of a movement. But it didn't really seem to lead to like an increase in policy support or something. More as if people were going home and saying like, okay, now I've painted this mural and um, now I've done my, my good deed for the day. <laughs> okay, but did any of the artwork actually motivate people to do something? Yes, or they left them feeling that feeling anyway. But it's important to remember, even with this audience, people were like going to a climate change art festival during UN climate talks, so like already an engaged group. It was only three of the 37 works that had that effect. And it wasn't the really sort of warm, fuzzy utopian ones. It wasn't the dystopian doomsday projections that, uh, you know, might amp up that fear and cause that tune out we just heard about. They were what the paper's authors called the awesome solution. So artworks that inspired awe, but not just talking about the problem, also talking about 
what to do about it. And even though this is a small study, Laura Summer says it shows that motivating people with art is not a given. So it seems like it's very hard and difficult for artists or generally to create something that connects with people and is really changing something. It's not that every artwork can do it. Um, it's that it seems to be difficult to do that. Well, as it seems, I mean, we listened to Omar Al-Akkad talk about the fact that, that he believes all literature eventually is going to be focused around climate because there is nothing else that's going to matter in our world. So I guess the question is, at the end of the day, should we de be deploying the artists to the front lines of communications to get the word out to people? Well, I think as, as he made a case for, as we've heard from these other artists, art has a role to play. But there's an interesting caveat here um, from Diego Galafassi, who we heard from earlier. And he called art a Swiss army knife for the imagination that you know can make this possible future, these uncertainties that we are not very good at wrapping our heads around, make them feel more real and pleasant. But also, if you imagine that Swiss army knife is a tool that you could just... Um, apply like just a functional instrument, he says you'll end up with bad art that really doesn't do the job anyway. In early engagements between the sciences and the arts, the scientists was, were turning toward the artist to transform the facts that they had into values, right? And expecting that the art could sort of sprinkle some magic <laughs> powder on it and, and transform those facts into value. But that sort of instrumental use of the arts has been not very beneficial, neither for the, the scientists nor for the artists. So arts, you know, cannot be contained, he said. But, you know, I, I think we're hearing today it also shouldn't be ignored. Yeah, no matter what we say, the artists are going to keep producing it and keep trying to get their messages out. And who knows that the one day will come when there is that one who knows, silver bullet that might awaken the world. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Now, as promised, Omar Elakad is back with us to read a brief passage from his novel, American War. Slowly the bus moved alongside the river, traversing the last shredded remnants of lower Louisiana. Here was where the water finally won. For decades, the government of the state and the country spent billions trying to save lower Louisiana from the encroaching seas, building hundreds of miles of seawalls, levees, raised causeways, and even towards the end, floating towns. It was still early days then, and the oceans had not yet devoured the optimistic notion that with enough concrete and dirt and pride and money, the low country could be saved. That was then. All that remained now were the entrails of that long subsumed world and the futile efforts to preserve it. Thin strips of asphalt that disappeared at high tide, ghost towns propped on man-made hills, crumbling bridges that nosedived into the water. Scattered among the islands that remained, these things stood as ruins, and like all ruins, were in their own way grotesque, a transgression against the passage of time. That does it for us this week. Thanks to our What on Earth team, associate producer Emily Rendell-Watson, producers Sonia Biting, Lisa Johnson, and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our technician, and Althea Manasan, our digital producer. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.